But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. You don't know where to start. I don't know where to start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's start with, for the first time since the late 90s, Roger Federer is no longer an active tennis player. This mere weeks after Serena Williams bowed out of her tennis career. Yes. I refuse to group them together. I want to give each their due. So it's the last time we're going to mention her. Right, but it's it's a fact of the it matter. Is, it is. It, is, it contributes to the enormity of the moment. These are two towering figures. Arguably, depending on which side of the fence you sit on, the two most towering figures in the history of men's and women's tennis ever. Perhaps. They're up there. I think it has a lot of fans thinking about... Uh, mortality and seasons changing and for me they were the first my first generation of tennis are you saying you didn't know men's tennis before roger federer uh a few years before i got into women's tennis first but i wasn't really like i didn't watch during sampras and courier and then uh like rafter kafelnikov all that i didn't really know that i know you were tuning into andy erotic matches i just yeah. know you were yeah in the early 2000s i was okay but uh you know roger is part of that generation mm-hmm. the andy erotic generation it's just remarkable that he's been around this long this episode is gonna have a heavy tilt towards federer and celebrating his career and his achievements and giving our lifelong personal experiences Of watching his career. And it's going to be a heavier treatment than what we gave Serena's evolution. And that's only because we are saving something hopefully special for Serena at a later date. An entire standalone episode. For Roger, I think for a lot of his career, we've we've had varying feelings. Like there was ambivalence. There was dislike for a while. No, no. (laughs) Being Rafa fans. I'm going to state here to be transparent, that it started for me with absolute disdain. <laughs> well, you you tend to go there, right? Like, you have very heightened emotions, uh, and you, you raise to that level maybe a little bit too quickly. Listen, I was an Agassi fan, and what Federer did to him in 04 and 05, Oof. in taking away those last glory moments, <laughs> I was disgusted. Yeah. And then... Given that I have a propensity to root for underdogs, when Federer ran away with tennis from 04 onwards, it was bleak for me as a tennis fan. Right. Now, Nadal asserted himself quickly. Mm-hmm. He started challenging at the French right away, won a bunch of hardcore titles. But my point here is that Agassi in 05, for example, in the US Open final, he wasn't expected to win. He got a set, and that felt like a titanic achievement. And Agassi said that it wasn't like playing Sampras. It wasn't like playing anyone he had played before. This guy is different. And in the beginning of Federer's slam-winning career, it seemed like it was so soon that people started saying, this guy could be the greatest. By the time it was 05, people were saying, like, this man is a genius, he's going to be the GOAT, and it's incredible how quickly that chorus started. And in that chorus, the discourse was this business of the class of Federer, the classiness of Federer. And that one-two step of beating my previous fave and then transitioning into being the classiest tennis player, impregnable character that ever lived, that was that was too much for me. <laughs> and we see it again today. We saw it throughout the entirety of his career, even with the rise of Nadal. They necessarily cast Nadal as the brute force opponent who didn't win with intelligence, but needed to be cast in that opposite light because Federer so squarely occupied that lane. Right. And so we hear things that, 
Well, Federer announced his retirement after the U.S. Open so that Serena could have her shine. And wow, how classy. Like every turn, everything that Federer does or did, it had to be classified in that way. And I think part of my initial aversion to him and my lifelong thinking through my own tennis fandom and its relationship to Federer is sifting through that and what that means specifically with with the ethos of this show, right? That mm-hmm. we, we mm-hmm. view tennis through a sociopolitical lens, right? How does that affect other people? How does that reflect the world outside of tennis? And in a large sense, it's completely out of his control, but it's instructive for us to address it to make sense of the world that we live in. Okay. Now, uh, a few years ago, I think we... Why are you laughing? I'm No, I'm laughing because I want to see where we're going with this. A few years ago, we talked about like the basically the reasons why we were never stand, and I think we lost like a bunch of listeners. I'm being dead serious here, like people literally unfollowed us right after that episode, and I don't want to go hard. Like I don't want to relive that. Roger is someone who I've grown to appreciate so much, but it was difficult early on. That just wasn't the player that I responded to, like the perfection. The sort of the harping on the grace and elegance, and he was like the apotheosis of Wimbledon whites. I just, uh, it, it wasn't something that moved me personally. And so I've definitely moved past, like now I just realized that that wasn't for me. Right. But also the downside of that is that we went a decade without really being able to appreciate his legitimate genius fully. And, right. And you know, I remember watching the those Wimbledon finals, especially the 08 final. And of course, I wanted Rafa to win, but I just loved it. I mean, I didn't want it to end. It was amazing. I, I never begrudged Roger for winning those Wimbledon finals against Rafa. It always felt like Rafa was building on something, like he was going to get there. That was um, not my experience. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was very bitter about it. Fair enough. But... To me, Roger got so much more interesting when he was no longer peerless. Of course, there was always Nadal keeping him from the French Open title, which he eventually won in 2009, winning his first Channel Slam, which, by the way, used to be rare. Mm -hmm. And now we have three players who've all done the Channel Slam, some multiple times. You said peerless, but I think more interesting is that he became more relatable and interesting to me when he became flawed. When he was mm. no longer flawless. When he let when, his temper out. Sure. When when holes were poked in that facade of imperious class and yeah. perfection. Because I think for you, there's also a colonial perspective on this. Absolutely, right? like yes. Wimbledon class and sort of this, the perfect example of what a... a <laughs> a Wimbledon club member should should be like the country club thing just never appealed to me personally and what got sanded down so frequently was the hard work behind the scenes training in UAE in incredible heat just the years and years and years it took to make this look so easy he made it look so easy which is why it's amazing why it's beautiful to look at but it's so much more interesting than that and I think John Wertheim did a good job in Strokes of Genius at sort of breaking down that that binary between him and other players, specifically Rafa in that case. I sit here and I decry the comparison between Nadal and Federer, whereby Federer is cast as effortless genius, having everything come to him so naturally, the preternatural prodigy, mm-hmm. right? And then Nadal is necessarily cast in part because of his muscles and his style of play, as the complete opposite of that, right? That he, Nadal, has to work so, so, so hard because he doesn't have those natural gifts. But that argument, that binary, does such a disservice to both players. Mm -hmm. Nadal, specifically in that his game and he is viewed as not being super smart. And then for Federer, as you said, the hard work that he had to put into his game throughout the decades of his career to get where he did, that is that is nowhere near given the credit that it's due. You wanted to talk about the title of this episode. It doesn't even matter. We weren't talking about uh, Federer's retirement because, of course, that matters. 
What were you trying to get at? Specifically sitting and watching Labor Cup this past week, which is where Federer played his last event. And you got to see Federer interacting with Nadal, Federer interacting with Djokovic, with Murray, all four, the supposed big four, having a blast to varying degrees Mm -hmm. (laughs) in their own specific interpersonal relationships. But everybody was there to have a great time, had a great time, was able to celebrate Federer and have it look as authentic as it probably was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that just struck me because we presided over this podcast for almost eight full seasons, been tennis fans for over 20 years each, and we've seen the development of the goat wars, of (laughs) fandom as a disease, as you put it, about how nothing can be said about one without folks taking it to mean a negative strike against the other. That at every turn, when talking about men's tennis over the last 20 years, that it it's fraught. That it is... It's a hostile environment. The discourse yes. is yeah. hostile. And in that moment of watching Labor Cup, I was struck by how all that that I personally lived through doesn't matter to these guys, by and large. Mm-hmm. I suppose you could sit here and make an argument that, okay, fine, Novak really still does feel away about not being as loved as all the others or doesn't get the glow that he deserves, even though he may be the greatest, you know? But by and large, these guys were not giving what you all and we have given in the past to the discourse surrounding these four guys. <laughs> yeah. You know, and we've participated in this as well. It's not like we're we're innocent of these kind of Stan wars. But Stan culture has really invaded tennis as well right and like you said any positive thing you say about a player is conceived as a negative about everybody else Novak looked really moved by the whole retirement like everybody was getting along they might not be as close as they once were or you know things have been said where everybody feels a little bit sore about it but it's not that serious no and okay fine Roger and Rafa may have a much closer relationship than Roger and Novak. Right. and So and, what? And Andy and Novak are probably closer than they are to the other two. And this, these are normal things. It was just a sense of what a waste of time. Right. Over all these years to have spent so much energy in participating in and watching this all unfold. When at the end, everybody's here understanding the magnitude and the actual gravity of the moment and what this career has been and it it led me to self-reflect on my own failure and shortcomings in that regard in not allowing myself to be fully present for the ride to really understand the greatness that we all had a front seat to watching for the last 20 years and it's not relegated to just the big four or just men's tennis So much has happened in women's tennis with the Williams sisters as well. We can't get into that on this episode because that's like, that's a podcast series. But we all have not allowed ourselves to be fully immersed in the experience that was on offer. Yeah, I think that we have made ourselves like create an enemy. And I'm I'm the same way, right? Like if somebody is winning who I don't want to win, I can no longer enjoy it. Yeah. And I got to work on that. Listen, back in the mid-2000s when Federer was in his imperial phase, when he lost that 2008 French Open final to Nadal, I still get yearly reminders from Facebook of what I did. (laughs) And I made a Microsoft, what was it, paint? A Microsoft paint Mm -hmm. image where I drew in multicolors with my finger, Federer sucks. And I posted it on my friend's Facebook wall. (laughs) That because is he so is rude. a huge Federer fan. Uh, we were young then. And full circle, he and I just sat and watched Nadal play at the US Open this year. It was his very first live tennis experience. Wow. So let's talk about that period, as you called it, the imperial phase. And what jumps out, I don't want to talk about stats too much, but I think the stat that really kills me, that, that puts Roger at the tip top, of men's tennis history is 10 slam finals in a row. Why does, it, a, why does it kill you? And then a very brief dip 
and then eight more slam finals in a row, all within a few years of each other. That is such, and it, it kills me because it's like, like it's hard to wrap your head around. And if you did not live through that, watching Roger go through, what, like maybe 04 to 08, 09, he, he felt unbeatable. It felt like this reign would never end. And unfortunately for him, the only thing that stopped him really from really making that era impregnable was Nadal the French. Mm-hmm. Roger was by far the second best player on clay for a good, probably four or five years. Without Nadal, he possibly could have won eight straight in a row. Well, that's a lie. Ten straight in a row. <laughs> and that would have included two calendar year Grand Slams. Like, that's crazy. Right. And these are all conditional and anything could have happened. But the level of his dominance was really hard to wrap your head around at the time. And the thing is, is that now we've seen others do it. Right. We've seen Djokovic reach that level of dominance and possibly surpass it. At the time, it just felt so impossible that somebody could do this. Remember that Roger was the first one to pass Pete Sampras's 14 slams which for a very brief period, and this is legend at this point, that felt like an unbeatable record. And it was beaten within, what, 10 years? It didn't take that long. No, it was done and dusted by 2009. (laughs) Oh my god. Okay, so that was 2002 is when Pete set that record. Yeah, Uh, I mean, the, the eight Wimbledons, the stretch of five US Opens and five Wimbledons in a row... These are legend-making stats. But I think what people, what fans really respond to is just the way that Roger played tennis. He, to me, he seemed to love tennis more than most great champions. Like, he actually looked like he was enjoying himself. (laughs) And for so many champions at that level, it feels a bit tortured. What are some of your most enduring Federer memories? Well, let me be nice and pick a match that he won. Okay. The, uh... What was it? The 09 Wimbledon final against Andy Roddick, which is a classic. I was, you know, I was rooting for Andy. He had been in so many finals at that point. And it just, it showed you like how impregnable he was on that surface. Reminded you that Roger could be a serve bot. He's number three in the all-time list of aces. Right. But, <laughs> but he had everything But else. it's different. His serve wasn't overpowering per se in terms of sheer speed Mm. but it was overpowering in its placement and spins yes and variety and that's where the argument can be made that he's the greatest server that ever lived on the men's side because he could do everything with his serve Mm -hmm. to think that this man accomplished so much with that backhand i know this may be heresy right (laughs) like (laughs) <laughs> a lot of people love the backhand. No, the backhand, it's its beautiful to look at. It's done great things. But in other spots, it's been great gowns, beautiful gowns. Well, it's been exploited very it's a, clearly by... Nadal. It's a fact of tennis history that a one-handed backhand is more exploitable than a two-handed backhand. Like, that is... That's not up for debate. I mean, you know I'm a, a one-handed backhand skeptic. Right. And my point is it, it moves beyond just... The aesthetics of it. It's, mm-hmm. Just because it's gorgeous doesn't mean it's great. Well, it could be very effective. Yes. And he could hit tons of winners off it. Yes. But some players really knew how to pick at it. Right. And I'm saying this, the, the great sum of other parts of his game made that not even a factor for most of his career. Right. I mean, you have some... You could of- just sit there and look at it and be like, oh my God, amazing. <laughs> Without even having to actually consider that this actually could be a little bit of a liability in his game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about you? What's a memory? It's not so much one specific memory, but a collective memory of him coming back from a fairly barren period between 2010 and 2017. He won the Australian Open in 2010. And then the only other slam he won before Australia in 2017 was Wimbledon in 2012. And for all the dominating that he did up until that point, that is a long, long period Mm -hmm. to be, you know, making semifinals, making quarterfinals, not being able to get over the hump. And it was during that period, and I think the same can be said for you, that we started to appreciate him more. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. To be able to pay attention to what he does in a tennis court and 
understand the greatness in his game. And then to see him come back in 2017 and start to have success again at that late stage of his career, that is a memory that I will always have of Federer, a positive one. Because I cannot say that a lot of the early career Federer memories are positive <laughs> for me. <laughs> I mean, Even the 2017 final, like, I can't be mad about it. In Australia, yeah. I cannot be mad about it because that was incredible stuff that he unleashed on Rafa mm-hmm. in that fifth set. Beating Rafa from a breakdown in the fifth set, then going on to repeat his Australian Open title in 2018. One more thing, and it's not a specific memory again. One of the things that I grew to really appreciate about Federer was how much of a dork he is. Yes. His dad jokes and how he cracks himself up over the most ridiculous things. I appreciate that. Like back in the day of the Wimbledon blazer, I didn't know that he was funny. Right. Like I thought he was a little bit stuffy and I didn't realize he was corny and he liked to joke around with the guys in the locker room and that everybody really liked him. I mean, he, he never felt like unlikable, but I just didn't realize he was kind of cheesy, which is endearing. Roger announced his retirement about a week before Labor Cup on September 15th. It was a social media push. He recorded a video and it was it was fatalistic, right? It was it was sad. He realized that his knee wasn't getting better. Training had sort of reached a plateau and he understood that he wouldn't be able to return to competitive tennis. And he said that I'm going to Labor Cup, but it's still not a guarantee that I'm going to play. Right. I hope to maybe play doubles. And at that point, folks are like, well, that has to be with Rafa. Indeed. And we found out at the Labor Cup that Roger had told Rafa about 10 days before his public announcement that this was coming. And he asked if Rafa would come to Labor Cup essentially for him. And Rafa had no plans to go to Labor Cup. He was going to go home. Apparently, he had re-aggravated the ab injury at the U.S. Open. Well, he had previously committed, but in light of right. subsequent developments with his body and with his family, he he changed his mind. Right. Mary is uh, pretty late in her pregnancy. There had been reports about hospitalization, and we don't really know fully what's going on. But it seemed like he needed to be at home. And he wasn't fully fit. And you could tell based on the way he was serving at Labor Cup. But it, uh, you know, that and the way that those two interacted and touched and (laughs) emoted together, like you can tell there's a really unique bond between them. Well, Rafa said, let me know for sure that you're going and then I will come for as long as I can, if I can at all. Mm -hmm. But I need to know that you're going first. (laughs) (laughs) We are, uh, we are not a Labor Cup podcast. Never personally have really gotten into the event watch it here and there just out of full transparency we've only watched it for Fedal. to Basically, be clear yeah. i uh i realized I, I realized why it doesn't appeal to me and it's because i'm not looking for teams like i'm not looking for team events in tennis it's not something that interests me mm-hmm. and i don't i don't like the like the frat boy behavior we see on the side some of it is interesting right like when players are really engaged and they're sort of coaching each other I don't like the frat boy shit. When Federer and Nadal are single-handedly dismantling toxic masculinity. <laughs> right. <laughs> on the bench by the in the retirement ceremony. Okay, I'm here for that. But as you said, and I think you know this about me, and this has been documented over time, that stuff, the the bro-bro frat boy, yo man, <laughs> like that shit is... It's repulsive to me. <laughs> I know this. Yes. Uh, and I get it. As somebody who's played team sport. Right. And also, the, I think we need to be honest about the stakes here. Right? There are no stakes. Does anybody care who wins? Oh, but they, they do. Well, sure. But wh- why? They care. Absolutely. But like, wh- how dare? <laughs> how dare Francis Teafo? Right. But what I want to know is why does anyone care if Team World or Team Europe wins? Like, these are... These are fake creations. Like these are, this is not like a historic, oh, like South Africa versus Great Britain and Davis Cup. Like it's made up. And Team World is just a collection of people from Anglophone countries and maybe one South American. It's basically Europe versus the British Commonwealth plus Diego Schwartzman. That's it. Like what? 
I just don't know, like, where do the stakes come from? Where does the... But if know. Team like, World didn't win this one, then John McEnroe's job might have been on the line. And Patrick McEnroe might have lost his vice presidency mm-hmm. job. <laughs> Stop. Wow. Life is good, right? I mean, to finesse your way into that, too. I, I don't get it. No, you're right. The whole thing is made up. And we got force-fed this idea that Labor Cup is trying to rebrand itself and make itself more accessible to the youth. Because the average tennis viewer is 92.73 years old. <laughs> and <laughs> I did finally find where these stats come from. Because a lot of leaders in tennis like to use this stat, like the average tennis viewer is 61 years old. It or must something. come from TV ratings, it, right? Yeah, it comes from Sports Business Journal. It apparently was using like cable TV ratings, which is very misleading because a lot of young fans get their tennis elsewhere. It's complete garbage because young people do not have cable. Right. And it's also difficult to find tennis on cable. Right. Right. We are not young and we do not have cable. (laughs) The cable days are done. And also having been to tournaments, it's not an average of 60 something years old. No. It is not. No, not at all. Not at all. So we need to be more transparent with this because in the one, in one breath, you can't be saying, oh, well, we need to appeal to young people, but then sell tickets for the top, right? The people. The people who have enormous 401ks. It just doesn't add up. I think we need to be honest here that... So they're doing interesting things with social media, for example. Like they're they're trying to reach people in different ways. By blocking people who talk about Alexander Zverev. Right, when they're not blocking people. But, you know, Tony Godzik can tell us that they're trying to expand the appeal of tennis. But what he should also tell us is we do not care if young people actually come to the event, we are going to price the event however we want. And people are still going to buy the tickets. It prices people out, of course. I, I mean, millennials and Gen Zs, we're, we're not buying $3,000 tickets. Also, We're not buying houses. We're not buying anything. Also, where are these events being held? Are we just going back and forth between the O2 Arena and somewhere in North America? Yeah, we got London. We've got Geneva. We've got the U.S., Come on, Boston. Guys. Come on. Like Vancouver. Anyway, this is not to say like anybody can love Labor Cup. That's allowed, right? This is not a cancellation. I just finally acknowledge why I personally am not on board. But if you like it, like good for you. That's awesome. Right. It's just I, not for me. I just know that after day one I was I was out. <laughs> it was over for me. The tournament was done. Okay, so this year there was no Zverev. There was no John Isner. Let's celebrate that, as Oprah said. It felt good. You know, the big four was together for the very first time at Labor Cup. Team Europe was leaning hard on sentimentality. I'm so sorry to say. They did not send their best. Right, but they also had injured players. They had old, ancient players. Some of the goats, but... Right, but for this moment, they had to be there. (laughs) They did, of course. And that's why I'm saying, like, who cares? Who cares if Team Europe lost? You got to see the big four together. You got to see Fidal play doubles and Roger retire. You got to Weird. see a tour de force performance from Ellie Golding. <laughs> Stop. We're almost there. Almost there. We got to see big strides being made by Felix and Francis. Let's... Okay, see, I'm not even going to go oh, there. Oh, you don't think it's real? I, I don't think it's real at all. Okay, all right. I don't think like, it's you real. You don't think these are real matches? No, at all. Come on. It, Felix had a good few weeks, though, between sure, Davis Cup and Labor But this Cup. has nothing on beating Novak, staring him down in a semifinal or a final of a slam. No, of course Absolutely not. nothing. Best of five. Like, you know you just need to win one set, and then you can get into a super tiebreak and see where it goes from there. Sure, he beat Novak in straight sets, but like, yeah, a couple cute results, but I am not going to come here and say, well... This means that Felix has arrived. Felix is making incremental progress. Okay, okay. And has had some head-scratching losses. And he's also had some good wins. I want to see more. Well, Francis, Tiafo, and Jack Sock beat Fidel. As you know, ushered Roger into retirement. Francis also beat Stefano Tsitsipas to clinch the win for Team World. Of course, his attitude, I guess, was met with... Just an incredible rush of horrible racist abuse on Instagram, it was which, so, is, it's which so, is to it, be expected. It's so predictable, right? 
It is. That Francis is palatable and someone that can be enjoyed just as long as you know your place. Insert whatever you want to insert there. Yeah. Uh, When he's not challenging the best players for big titles, he's not threatening. You can treat him like a clown. When he's a clown, he's entertaining. But when he's winning, you all of a sudden don't like the same stuff he was doing before. But now he's winning. And there's always some respectability argument, Mm -hmm. right? That, oh, you shouldn't be doing this at this time. It's disrespectful. And this is where the class and the classiness comes in, right? Every time I hear that word, I cringe. Because Federer is classy, but Serena is not. But Venus is classy, but mostly only in relation to Serena. Right. And what does that say? Like, there's this whooshing sound... And that sound is tennis Twitter finding another black player to use as a prop to prove that they're not racist. Mm-hmm. It's always that. It was right? Naomi for it's a like, while. Well, why can't you act like Coco on court? Oh, but then Coco got political. Why so, can't Serena act like Venus? Why can't Serena act like Naomi? Oh, but we don't like oh, Naomi no. anymore. Oh, no. We don't like Naomi But not anymore. Naomi anymore. Mm-hmm. Not her anymore. So we have to find another black player. And oh, Coco is great. Coco is amazing. But. Mm. She's getting a little bit too big for her britches. And let's just call it what it is, uppity. Mm -hmm. Uppity, which is an incredibly loaded racist term in the United States. You may not know that if you're not from North America. But what I'm seeing on social media is this rush, and it's the same people, those of whom I haven't blocked yet, the same people (laughs) who said the same things during the 2018 U.S. Open final, right? (laughs) It's like, oh, oh, I don't, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't like this. It's like, okay, I just, I just said that I don't, I don't like the frat boy shit, right? Mm -hmm. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but I'm not going to boil that down to like, oh, Francis is, he's terrible. I hate the way he acts. You can't celebrate it in one, one instance and then be like, oh, this is gross. Oh, Francis, he almost decapitated both Federer and Nadal. Right. And then like Federer didn't care. So why should I? Federer waved off the crowd to tell them not to boo. And, like, I, I just don't get it. You, They keep trying to convince us this is a real event and the players should care. But Francis cared too much. And that was distasteful because he wanted to win the match. Do you think that Roger wants to go out there and have somebody lay down their sword and let him beat them? No, I don't think so. I really don't. The receipts on this podcast have been bountiful with us saying that you should attack your opponent. Oh, yeah. Yet. Oh, yeah. So this is not hypocrisy, folks, from our part. Mm-mm. We've been hypocritical go, many times before. Go through my Twitter. Uh, I mean, how many times have I been watching a tennis match and there is an easy ball at net and I jump from my seat and I'm like, finish him! <laughs> <laughs> Even in the uh, the 07 Australian final, when Maria uh, hit an overhead like right at Serena and Serena mouthed something bad, I was like, <laughs> girl, she did the right thing. Maria was supposed to do that. And how many times, and Francis did this at the U.S. Open, all y'all with short memories, Francis did this at the U.S. Open where he should have gone at the net at the player mm-hmm. and he patty-caked, patty-caked all over the court and lost points he should have won. He hiccuped. He he didn't go for the kill. And one of the, the knocks against Francis is that he's not serious enough, that he's he doesn't have the killer instinct. Right. So now right? that now that he's too serious at this exhibition event, now he's acting like an asshole. Like But the, he tried to fell the classiest of the gods. The thing is a black male player will never be able to win, right? Like we black player period. Right. But since Arthur Ashe, we haven't had a, a dominant black male player. And we historically have to sand down Arthur Ashe to to fit an ideal that tennis will accept. Francis is brash. He's he's a lot, right? Like he has a huge personality. And I'm just, I want him to win, but I'm afraid of what he'll have to endure if he reaches that stage. Hmm. So, I mean, obviously, like I want the, the most for him. I want him to win slams. It just, it sucks that we always have to talk about this. And then we get the... I'm. I don't like Francis anymore. I wish he'd be more like Felix. Oh, there we go. Right there is the prop. There is the proof. The proof that you're not racist. But also the shift to 
the respectability. Mm-hmm. I just want to add one more reflection on Federer's game specifically. You know, back in the day, it was a part of my life. Sent me to the prom with my curling skirt on, even if I did drive myself. Oh, oh God. <laughs> I know what this is. Uh, for those who know, they know. But part of me sitting here and ruining the fact that I did not fully engage with and appreciate Federer's greatness back in the day is coming here now and declaring that this man was a genius. Like, you mentioned his footwork, the way he glided across a tennis court. For me, it was the ridiculous shots he would come up with that were a result of his impeccable feel. Do you remember back in the day when Agassi would play and the thing that folks would talk about all the time with Agassi was his hand-eye coordination, his half-volley that he would hit from the baseline? Mm-hmm. Federer had that in spades and more. Like He could do ridiculous flicks, little wrist shots, create these outrageous angles, win points from impossible positions just because the ball felt so much different to him than everybody else off of his tennis racket. Mm-hmm. And part of that was audacity. Yes. The, <laughs> just the absurdity of attempting these shots. And that's why I feel he loved playing the game so much. That's where it came out, right? Like, why would you even try these? And in trying those he was able to achieve them while looking like he was giving a tenth of the effort that somebody else would. Right. When he stretched all the way on the forehand side, looking like he's about to lose a point, and he just sticks his racket out and hits a blistering down-the-line winner, (laughs) it's like, how? How do you beat this man? Right. And Andy Roddick was really, uh, I think, the player who... Are you about to say he's the player who suffered most? At the hands of Federer? To me, he's like the example, right? (laughs) He's the casualty of the Federer era. The player who I think of, when I think of like someone throwing up their hand saying, what can I do? Like, I have tried everything. Now, this was actually supposed to be a mailbag episode. I don't know if we'll get there. We'll see. We might answer a few. Uh, I was excited to talk about the mail. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're going with the flow here. We got to talk about this retirement ceremony because what the hell was that? What? <laughs> Listen, it I'm was, sure. Honestly, I... it was too good. It was simply too good. So Ellie Golding. Is it Golding? Golding, what, what Golding. Ellie, Miss Ellie. Yeah. She comes out and she sings two songs. One of them is Burn. You're going to say Burn, 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 and Burn, Burn. Burn. burn, burn, burn. And I'm sure there'll be some Federer fan out there who will reach out and say, how dare you not know that in 2014, Federer let us know that Charlotte was a huge fan of Ellie. <laughs> like, is there some connection that, and that I don't know? That she's been to dinner in Switzerland many times. <laughs> is there some kind of connection there that I'm not getting? Like, why was it her? Not that, no disrespect to Miss Golding. Um, was was everybody else unavailable because of the Global Citizens like concert? Sam Smith? I mean... No, uh, we don't need that. Adele would be a big kid, but like... Not Sam Smith. Was Dame Shirley Bassey not around? Though Sam Smith would um, have captured the somberness of the moment. <laughs> because that is one thing he is very good at. Sucking the life and joy out of mm-hmm. any song. Like what he did to Miss Whitney. Like, uh, was Tom Jones not available? Maybe one of the remaining Beatles? Um... <laughs> The hologram of ABBA, perhaps. Uh, Celine Dion won Eurovision for uh, Switzerland. Did you know this? Yes, I did Way, way back. I did know that. It could have been Celine. It was such an odd choice. And the videos of Roger and Rafa literally sobbing with the background of Ellie's second song. Why were there two? It was just, it was absurd. Like, it was actually kind of funny. I will say that Jim Courier did an excellent job with the the post-match interview. And he mentioned on Twitter, like, my job is to be invisible, right? Like, you're you're not supposed to remember the questions he asked or anything. He really, he let Roger kind of live in that moment. And it was very emotional, especially when he talked about his family. Ooh, 
I don't don't get me going. But when he and Mirka embraced and kissed each other on the cheek back and forth repeatedly for like two minutes. Right. And what he said about her, that is a man who knows that he has a good woman next to him. That that she's the glue that holds the family together. And that he acknowledged that she allowed him to keep playing. That if and implied that if she was done, then he would have stopped a long time ago. Because think of the things that she's had to sacrifice to keep this career going. They've got four kids. He's traveling around the world. Um, So I really appreciated that. And man, those two are in love. I did not... I thought the older twins, the girls, there were like seven. I think everybody was a bit shocked by how grown they are. (laughs) I don't remember when they were born, but I'm like, those are tweens. (laughs) How did this happen? You said to me, those are mini miracles. Yes, they really are. So I looked it up, because Google is free. <laughs> the twin girls were born in... Uh, I don't know. 2010? 2009. What? And the twin boys were born in... I don't... I'm, I Come don't, on, man. Play I along. I don't care. Play along. Uh, 2013. 2014. Okay. So depending on the birthdays, they're 13 and 8. Yeah. Well, I was shocked. I thought the girls were little. But of course, what everyone was talking about was Roger and Rafa's embrace their genuine physical affection toward each other, which is so refreshing. You know, Roger, you notice, touched his leg. They were holding hands on the bench. Well, he it's touched just... his, he reached for his leg for support as he was bawling and then shifted it to holding his hand. And then they were yes. both crying on the bench. I mean, you just, you have to love it. Male. No, 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 no. What? We say this all the time that you can't tell people you have to love oh, something. Oh, that's true. You don't you don't have to love this. I I'll backtrack this. But we love I, the hell out of it. <laughs> yes. I love to see men showing real affection toward each other that's not like hand slapping, butt slapping, like aggressive masculine sports stuff. Like this is it it just was different. It was nice. It met the moment. It did. And it, it is it is kind of jarring to see somebody show that much genuine emotion in public to actually be like bawling, right? It's not a single tear. We know that they're historic rivals. We also know that they are friends. We didn't know, I don't think, the extent to which that cut so deep and the right. ways that intertwined for the both of them to the point where Rafa said, recently that back in 2009 he initially did not want roger to win the french open (laughs) he was like you know there were some considerations there for me to get to number one but once roger won the french open he found himself crying at the achievement Mm. and he said at this event at labor cup miss ellie calls it lava cup That they had this this huge emotional moment on the bench after the match. And they carried on and they did the requisite press engagements. And he went back to his hotel room and he cried again. Mm-hmm. And we know Rafa is a, a sensitive individual. That's how he identifies himself. Uh, but the two clearly have a deep connection and it's it's not surprising. Even rivals who hate each other have this deep connection that they're a part of each other. Even John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg are at a place where they're collegial, they're buddies, you know, they're captains together. Martina and Chrissy, though it had its ebbs and flows, by and large, was a very cordial, if not super friendly, rivalry. And that's arguably the greatest ever. And now it's like a true friendship. I think Magic Johnson and Larry Bird are a similar example. I cannot speak to that. (laughs) But I don't know why you're going out of your wheelhouse now. Well, I, fi- I figured you would know. Um, the point is, like, it, you know, those deep and lasting friendships happen sometimes among rivals, but it's, I wouldn't say it's like the standard case. Mm-hmm. But you both have experienced something profound with each other over a period of years. You've pushed each other. You probably wouldn't be the player that you are without the other person. You've shared your greatest victories that necessarily meant it was some of the greatest losses for the other yeah. in the same moment. Yeah. The 2009 Australian Open final. Mm-hmm. 
And to actually feel, you know, as the winner, to feel bad, to feel guilt and feel like you wanted to console that person. Because you have been in that exact spot with the same person before. Mm-hmm. Again, we I, I know I've said it on this show a lot with respect to folks telling players when and when they shouldn't retire. That there's so much wrapped up in being a professional athlete at that level that we will never understand. Right. And this is something that bears that out, I feel. We had a window into what their relationship was, but we could never have known even half of it, of what it actually is. Yeah. And it's possible they didn't even know as well themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the enormity of this moment, the finality of it hits them so hard in that moment. And for Rafa, he he knows that his retirement is not in the distant future. Right, right. And so, as he said, which I thought was one of the most touching parts of this whole thing, he said that going through this with Roger and having him leave, it feels like part of him is leaving as well. Mm-hmm. Like, that was that was a lot. Yes. And Roger's playing alongside players who say, I'm playing tennis because of you. Berrettini said this. Tsitsipas idolized Roger when he was a kid. It just it just must be a very strange experience. And I do like I feel bad that he didn't get he didn't get to go out in like an ATP tournament or he didn't have that moment of glory. Are you but saying the Labor Cup is not an ATP stop, tournament? Stop. How dare you? I'm just saying he he knows and we know that he couldn't compete with full fitness, right? Because and, the and natu- I, the I na- wish that he had been able. The to. natural end spot would have been Basel. Oh, yes. When we learned yes. that he wasn't going to be playing Basel, that's when we well, knew the yeah. fitness was just not there. Right. I mean, we've said this many times, like, as much as players try, like, you cannot plan your retirement. You either disappear, like Pete Sampras, after winning the U.S. Open, or it may not be picturesque, right? It, it may be Steffi Graf losing at a, a California tournament and then stopping. It may be Chris Everett losing to Zena Garrison. But you mythologize the best way to do it. Right. And folks right. always, always go the Sampras route. And it was so unlikely that Sampras even won that U.S. Open, right? Like he was in the wilderness for a year or two. But then we have Serena coming back from a year out at 40, going on 41, struggling in the lead-up tournaments, winning two matches, including beating the number two player in the world, and in that final game, giving a snapshot into her entire career in the span of a few points. (laughs) Yes. That was incredible. There is merit to so many different ways of retiring. Mm -hmm. And I feel compelled to just sit here, eat my food, and watch it unfold and (laughs) self-reflect at what I'm watching. And there was, you know, there was some poetry... For Roger to be able to retire alongside his greatest rival and now a great friend. And there were moments of brilliance and that was enough, right? We got to see him on a tennis court one more time. One of the other favorite moments for me at this event, and it really didn't start until Rafa got there. Because what, mm-hmm. what was it like? Two days, everybody was there doing pictures. Uh, yeah, the, the suits. I feel doing like dinners. They just brought the same suits. Out walking the streets. Roger having to explain to Andy what the shard is. All these yeah. different promo events. It's a reminder that Andy is Scottish, Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> doing all these promo events, and it's like, where's Rafa? Where's Rafa? A little bit of panic setting in. Mm-hmm. Is Rafa coming? And then Rafa is like, "Don't worry, guys." <laughs> I'm going to be there tomorrow. I just had this thing to do with the king, la majestad, and then all this other stuff. Oh, is that how you say his majesty? Yeah. And it really goes into full force when Rafa shows up. Yeah. And you start to get the behind the scenes stuff, the Federer Insta Lives, where (laughs) he shows up to practice and he's filming the whole thing and he walks by... He and Rafa are going to practice together, and he walks by Nadal's camp, which includes his family, his father, his sister, his mother, mm. like the whole shebang. They're all there. The entire coaching staff. And he's walking through, and all of a sudden, Roger says, La Familia! <laughs> it was cute. Like, and yeah, there's clearly like so much respect between the families as well. 
to me, like, this is the value of Labor Cup. That's what I want to see. The matches don't, don't really care. Like, I would, this is going to sound weird, but I would literally, like, rather watch the players backstage eating their dinner. So you want to see ATP Big Brother? The real world. You want to see ATP Big Brother? No, I don't watch Big Brother. But Big Brother is, like, 24-7 stream. <laughs> Okay, but this like sitting at the table with the catering guy behind them and players sitting there and eating and seeing who's talking to each other. And, I want to see them like, cooking for each other and sharing a meal oh, that Rafa's, they've cooked. Rafa's uh, pasta with gom- gambas. <laughs> pasta con gambas. <laughs> <laughs> the future of the Labor Cup going forward without those two performing and when Djokovic goes as well. Like, I, I don't know how... I just don't know what the value add is there. I mean, if... If they're selling tickets and making money, like, it will continue. I'm all for making tennis more appealing to the youngsters, but why don't you invite young people into the fold? (laughs) Like, you know, we have a lot of executives who are in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s telling us what young people want. Right. Why don't you ask young people what they want? What is the average age of tennis executives? Stop telling me the average age of of tennis viewers. Girl, what is... Maybe we should change it from the top down. What is the average gender? How about that? (laughs) I know we can't average gender. It's it's silly to me. Like, I don't have the answer, but there are some simple answers. Make tennis accessible. Make people be able to turn on the TV... Or turn on their streaming service and know exactly where to find it. Make tournaments accessible. And it's not enough to just sit here and bitch about pickleball. That is not the answer I don't either. care about I don't care that about this. That is not the answer. This war between pickleball and tennis, I find it very annoying. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> I think at this point, this is going to be a, a Federer slash Labor Cup episode, strictly. And then we'll record shortly, very soon. Mm-hmm. A standalone mailbag episode that maybe just catches up on some of the results as well. Yeah, because there's a lot of great questions here that I really want to answer. So what we're going to do here, there's one last thing I want to talk about. And then we'll answer the couple mailbag questions we received that were specific to Labor Cup. And then we'll call it a show. Okay. I have here on the agenda, big three or big four question mark. And then you wrote... At sign, Jonathan. Wow, you really want to go there? (laughs) Uh, Well, surprise me. For me, it's in keeping with the title of this episode. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't even matter. It does not matter. In the words of the great, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Mr. Federer. Yes. Answering this question, we fall victim to distilling everything down to slam titles. And if you look at Federer, 20, Djokovic, 21, Nadal, 22, Murray, what? Three. Three. Right. In numbers, there's, they're it, not in the same. It league. seems like a ludicrous question. Right. When you consider Federer made 10 finals in a row, and then shortly after, eight more in a row. We've lived through people like looking for a needle in a haystack, somebody to break through to win who is not one of these four people. The fact that Andy Murray existed in those conversations and now has a metal hip because of it (laughs) is testament to his talent, his ability, and his role in the story. He lost a lot of finals. That doesn't make his achievements lesser than to me. And also it doesn't matter to me. When you say big four, I understand what you mean. I don't take it as well, we need to relegate this to these specifically great people as opposed to just signifying what you're talking about. Does that make sense? Mm, like when I you say guess. when you say big four, I know the totality of the era that I'm talking about. Yes, that's that's where I wanted to land. The big four describes a period more than anything. Yes. Right? Even more than four players. It describes a period in which, you know, Andy Murray had a winning record against Federer during Federer's dominant period. He won a lot of Masters titles. He reached a lot of slam finals. What of the 2016 season? Always there. The 2016 season. It may have been just one season. (laughs) But it was a hell of a season. He lost heartbreakers to these guys. Like, this is what sets him apart from Stan Wawrinka, 
who also won three majors, and he was always in the conversation. Big three, big four, I think both terms are useful, but they're really, uh, it's just for analysts, it's for statisticians and fans, but like, Andy is part of the story as much as anyone else. The couple Labor Cup mailbag questions that we want to get into. Sea Salt and Rum asks, what exactly is Federer's legacy? What did he bring to the sport that no one brought before? Is there anyone on tour who now brings that? This is a loaded-ass question. (laughs) I feel that his legacy will take shape, like, as time goes on. I think maybe it's it's too soon for me, at least. What do you... I mean, like, there are so many cliches about Roger Federer. There was recently a story by... I think it was by Jonathan Liu, who talked about no athlete has ever inspired more bad writing than Roger Federer. Oh, and you love, you love to talk about David Foster Wallace. Let me not speak ill of the dead. Uh, But I, I mean. You hated it. When I tell you I hated Roger Federer's religious experience, I hated it. But not, I mean, there's, there's just been very, we talked about it a little bit. Just simplistic writing about Roger. It's lazy. It's It's lazy because it necessarily does not consider otherness. Right, and it was probably like a Sachin Tendulkar level mm-hmm. of yep. idol idolatry, Absol- right? Absolutely. See, I dropped a cricket reference. He's probably the most perfect non-tennis comparison that you could make. Mm. So, because nobody could convince me that Sachin Tendulkar's tiny little push straight elbow off drive for four was more beautiful than Brian Lara's. <laughs> Whip off the hip for four. I knew we were going there. And I don't know what you're talking about. But (laughs) where I was trying to go is that Roger, to me, like, he he set the tone, right? Like, he kicked off this unbelievable era in tennis. And he made his opponents be greater. Without Roger, I don't know who Rafa and Novak would have been. Right? We don't know that. I'm not making any projections or anything it's just impossible to understand the greatness that came after him without him because i think that's his legacy it's unusual to have so many greats in succession let alone playing in the same era it's unprecedented we're always left with questions of well what if what if serena played against steffi for more than a year and a half what would serena versus martina look like right instead we have this (laughs) Well, what would happen if Novak, in his imperious phase, played at that level against Federer at his imperious phase? What if they were all imperious at the same time? (laughs) Right. What if they were all the same age? Yeah. Would they have become the players they are? And, like, it's, it's cool to think about, but I think we have to give credit where it's due. So the legacy to me is, okay, essentially igniting this golden era of sports in a similar way that Tiger Woods forced the field to to reach his level. Nobody was playing like him. The way that Serena Williams forced people like Justine and Kim, and even her sister, to raise their games to her level to even compete. And you see it in other sports too. That's part of his legacy. And I think the other part is like, wow, who look who looks like that on a tennis court? Who can do these things? Who can move like him? Who has that many weapons? For me, part of his legacy as well, and it's the same for all all tennis players, especially on the men's side, given the clout and the status and the stature of these men, they didn't do enough with their position mm. to effect like actual change to a lot of things that concern us. Yeah. To Federer's credit, he was always incredibly engaging in press, but there was always a limit to where that would go. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I think um, Roger and Rafa are moderates. Yes. Their their personality is like, they're not there to be revolutionaries. Right. And I know folks will say, there's no room for politics in sport. But if Roger Federer, if Rafael Nadal had said, listen, I'm not showing up to your little tournament unless you pay the woman equally across the board. Or I want to see you ATP take... Matters of domestic violence, seriously. I mean, yeah. they were Largely, for that's... multiple times 
over various periods on the ATP Council. <laughs> There's so much that they could have done that they got to toe the line between reveling in their greatness and doing just enough. If we're being frank. Yep. And certain people, because of their subject position, are allowed to be apolitical and other people mm -hmm. can't be. Federer, who under no circumstance runs the risk of anybody doubting his sexuality because he has two sets of twins, <laughs> could have worn a rainbow wristband at some point. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's so many things that I would have loved to have seen happen that weren't the sole responsibility of Federer or anybody else. But I've always wanted a top athlete to take the reins and run with these things. Mm -hmm. And I felt like they were in a position that they were untouchable. They were untouchable. The sport, I think one of the legacies of Roger Federer is that he was so much bigger than men's tennis. Men's tennis needed him at every turn. And he played the role. And, <laughs> and he was happy to do it. I'm but he didn't push the needle. He, right. I'm glad that he he got the bag from Uniqlo because he has made so much stinking money for so many people. He is like a god in some in some circles. So take that Uniqlo money. Be a billionaire. I know that we've lost Rihanna to the eat the rich <laughs> <laughs> campaign. Oh my god. Okay. What changed? I don't Rihanna know Rihanna mm. has been asked before to do the Super Bowl halftime show and she said no not with all this bullshit you're doing with Colin Kaepernick absolutely not but she will be there next mm. whenever January February whatever and uh you know what probably watch it you know you it's will. a cultural event Rihanna hasn't even performed Rihanna Rihanna <laughs> she hasn't even performed in years you didn't think this was gonna be just an unfettered unmitigated praise fest for <laughs> it, Federer. Did you? Did you, listeners? Certainly not how it started or ended. The other question that we wanted to acknowledge is from Dr. Mop, who's been around since like 2015. We talked a lot about what she asked. Um, Fidel holding hands, tears, 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 sudden Rafa departure, rise of Novak. We didn't mention that. This cynically was a PR coup for Novak. I think this did a lot for his image, if he cares. Because he was genuinely engaged. He was emotional about Roger's retirement. Nobody was talking about the vaccine bullshit. And he just got to be like a regular dude. Who are these people who have such short memories? Oh, well, I don't know. Like, <laughs> for me, it was like, I thought it was so ridiculous that folks were looking for him to be all salty on the sidelines. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Like, he's a human being. How could you not be moved by what was going on in front of you? you and know? also, even if he wasn't, he would have faked it. He's smart. Also, it's just kind of unseemly and seedy to be looking at that angle in this moment. You know? Mm. Just let them all be. Right, which mind. is really your, your theme throughout this episode. And so I'm of the mind where I have not forgotten. I was like, yeah, yeah, girl, right? have that moment. Basically, you can go on for this week. Exactly. You know, <laughs> but time out. We'll be back on your neck next have, week. <laughs> have, have a little breeze out, you know, <laughs> but back to regularly scheduled programming next week. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that deep. Right. Uh, Dr. Mop also mentions Riley Opelka's look on Tennis Channel. I personally did not see it. Someone pointed out to me that he was commentating. I didn't. We don't have Tennis Channel here. So, I don't know. Tell us how it was and what he looked like. I saw a picture. Of, like, the short suit? I don't know what he was wearing, but I saw a picture he's of an, him. He's an artiste. Well, he takes up a lot of the camera lens because there's a lot of him. It's <laughs> just you, a lot to look Do you remember that Beyonce at. lyric? That shit was so good. I think I'm going to buy him a short set. <laughs> That's from B-Day. <laughs> We have so many other great questions and we're going to solicit more questions for you. And I think we're in a moment now where we just want, we want levity. So we're going to, we're going to have a mailbag episode next and we're going to try and be easy breezy with it. Mm -hmm. Maybe bring you a few laughs. Uh, hopefully there were 
occasional laughs on this episode. Or laughs. Okay. Something. Mm -hmm. You know, levity, as Miss Carrie would say. Brings that levity. Mm -hmm. If you are in the market for the Body Serve merchandise, you can get 30% off everything in the Body Serve store at Redbubble from now, which is September 26th, until September 28th. So it's a three-day sale. It so happens to coincide with the release of an episode, which is great timing for us Mm -hmm. because we have no control over when these sales happen. (laughs) (laughs) And this is probably the best sale that there will be. I don't think I've seen more than 30% off from Redbubble. It's usually 20, maybe 25, but no, it's 30% off. So get your bucket hats, get your dog mats, your dog blankets, all that good stuff. I think somebody for the first time today bought a TBS hardcover notebook. Which I personally have had my had my eye on for a long time, and you didn't even know that we I, sold. I didn't even know that existed. But thank you so much for buying one. I guess I should tell you what the promo code is. The promo code is change it up thirty. Change it up thirty. Do I need to spell it out? I don't think so. Okay. And so you can go to linktree.com slash the body serve. There'll be the link to Redbubble there, and then you use promo code change it up thirty to get your swag. I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis underscore John. I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We hope that you have been sufficiently nourished by this Federer retrospective. We are not experts on Roger Federer. Uh, We hope that we were able to talk about it in a way that you would have expected us to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) And folks who are disappointed, I guarantee you there are scores of other tennis podcasts who can heap the praise that you want on Federer that we were not able to provide. Is that too tongue-in-cheek? No, it's correct. Okay. You just will not get lies here. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.